Well, good morning. And Merry Christmas. Let's say it again together. Merry Christmas. I hope you use that greeting as you go about the season. You know, we're tempted to say uh, happy holidays, and that's all right, those kind of things. But it's really, Christmas is about Christ. It's not Xmas. It's Christmas. And, of course, it comes from the Mass they used to have, the Christ Mass. But we call it Christmas, and what a wonderful time of year. You know, my dad was a Baptist preacher. But Well, let me introduce my wife and daughter first. This is my wife, Debbie. If you don't know, wave, Debbie. We've been married 43 years, something like that, right? 43. And my, my number two daughter, i got four daughters. Now, if you know in the book of Acts, if you look for Philip in the book of Acts, I want you to look this verse up. It says, Philip had four daughters who were prophetesses. I'm going to preach on that sometime, not today. This is number two daughter, Ashley. All right? So Ashley, she hadn't been here before. I think uh, Amanda's been here and some of the others. But I've, my oldest daughter's married. My youngest daughter's married. They each have three kids. So we've got six grandkids. But the middle two, Ashley and Amanda, are single. So um, they're living with us right now. Ashley's going to school. She wants to be a, a sign language interpreter. So she's taking classes for that. She's worked with children her whole career. She loves kids, and kids love her. Back to Christmas. My dad was a Baptist preacher his entire life. And you know, some people, and even some preachers, get down on the commercialism of Christmas, and it, we can overdo it, right? In our family, look at Debbie, then look at me. Who overdoes it at Christmas? <laughs> I just want to get stuff for my girls. Four daughters and a wife, and um, I just like buying them things, seeing that smile on their face, but I can get myself into trouble. But my dad used to say he thinks, he thinks it's great. Now, when we have birthdays, who gets presents? We do. But on Jesus' birthday, who gets presents? Everybody. And it's kind of, it, it really demonstrates what Christmas is all about because what's the greatest gift of all? Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So Christmas is a great time of year. You know, if I could do one thing, for believers in America today, if I could flip a switch, I would flip a switch that says spiritual, spiritual, spiritual vision. And I'd flip a switch and you guys would put on a pair of glasses to where you could see the world the way God sees it. You would see the world through spiritual eyes. Our problem is we've got physical eyes, and our physical eyes dominate everything, right? We see the physical. We look at someone and we say, well, that person's this, that, or the other. And God looks at him and says, there's my child. God looks at him and says, wow, this person's valuable. God looks at him and says, I love this person, every person so much I sent my son for this person. Do you understand that, that everybody here, every person in this world is valuable to God? And the other thing I would, I would I, I, your spiritual vision switch, when you put those glasses on that you would understand, is why God did things the way he did. With our physical minds, we can't understand it. But if we had spiritual minds, we could. But I believe that Christmas is about the reason 
God created the world. The reason God had to send his son. Why did God have to send his son? I don't know. God made the rules. He could have made them any way he wanted. But he was in a place called heaven, a spiritual realm. And he decided to create a physical realm. Now, scientists today call it the Big Bang. Have you heard of the Big Bang? I believe in the Big Bang. I just know who made the bang. There was a point in time when God said, let there be. And boom, there was. Amen? Amen. And he created a beautiful world. And he put Adam and Eve in that world, a man and a woman. And on the sixth day of creation, what did he say about everything he created? In fact, if you look in my Bible, I'd say it was very good. He said it was good as he did different things. And when he got to the end, he said it was very good. Debbie and I were walking down. We took a week's vacation after Thanksgiving. We were on the coast, and we went to a little town in Laguna Beach. And I went in to buy some new flip-flops because mine had worn out. I won't tell you that story, but... But across the street was a Christian science reading room. And we walked by, and a lady came out, and we started talking to her. And she was a joyous lady, but invited us in to read all about Christian science. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but Christian science does talk about the Bible. It talks about Jesus, and it talks about healing. But she said something that, and again, I'm not an expert on Christian science. So you'll have to talk to Manny about that. He's going to seminary. But... They believe that this world is not real. This is what she was telling us, that you have to live as if this world isn't real, and you have to be in the spiritual realm, and this is an evil place. What did God say about his creation? It was very good. But what happened? Evil came into it. So we've got a very good world in which there's evil. And God has chosen to allow evil to stay here until he judges the world, until he ends the world. And that's going to happen sometime. I don't know when. But we live in a very good world that God created where there's lots of evil. And what does evil cause? It causes suffering and death. And so in this world we live in, there's suffering and death. God does, didn't cause it. He allows it. Okay? And so because men... Men and women sinned. We won't talk about who sinned first or who sinned what. We're not here to cast blame. We're all sinners, right, in God's eyes. We all fail. Because that relationship with God was broken, a relationship where he walked in the garden and talked with Adam and Eve, because it was broken, he wanted to send his son to renew that relationship between people and between God. That's why Jesus came. Now, the older I get, the more questions I ask, but the less I expect to know it all. Are you like that? When I was young, I thought I could figure it all out. Now I've realized, nope, I'm never going to figure it all out. But I will say this. The more older I get, the more convinced I am of the truth of what's in this book. The more convinced I am that there is a God, the more convinced I am that he has a plan the more convinced I am that I'm never going to figure out all the details of that, how it all works, because there's an element of faith that comes into play. But I want us to do something different today. 
I want us to look at one of the reasons that Jesus came. If someone were to ask you, why did Jesus come? Uh, you might have a lot of responses. Uh, he came to seek and to save those that are lost. When he was standing before Pilate, he said something really different. He said, I came to bear witness to the truth. He came to demonstrate the truth. But he came to save us. He came to be our Savior. But in that concept of being our Savior, there are some, are some very important liberating truths that I want to talk to you about today, one in particular. Jesus came to remove the barrier between us and God. In the Old Testament, he set up a system with the law and sacrifices. And who did the people have to go to in order to sacrifice and get access to God? The priests. Say it again. The priests. Now, today in the Catholic Church, anybody grow up in a Catholic Church? I've got a lot of Catholic friends. Okay, so you know more about it than I do. So you correct me. Go like this if I'm wrong. But in the in the Catholic Church today, uh, Catholic priests uh, operate under the assumption when Jesus told his disciples, if you forgive their sins, they'll be forgiven. And if you don't, they don't. They believe that that authority to forgive sins has been handed down from the first apostles to the priests today. Okay, is that right? And so when you go to a Catholic church, they have something in, in their church or their building that we don't have. And what's that? Confessional. Now, growing up in Eureka, my dad was a pastor. We came to California to go to Golden Gate Seminary in 1954. Who was in California in 1954? A few of you. There you go. So in 1954, I was three years old. We came to go to seminary. Well, my dad in his last year of seminary, 1957, began to pastor a little church up in Eureka, California, Pine Hill Baptist Church. The problem was this was a brand new church without a building. And so they rented from the Catholic hospital, an abandoned Catholic hospital. They built a new Catholic hospital. The old one's sitting there empty. They had a chapel there. So Pine Hill Baptist Church rented the chapel in the Catholic hospital and held church there. So when I was a boy, in fact, that's where I was saved. That's where I accepted Christ. We were the only Baptist church in town with a confessional in the back. <laughs> we used to have lots of fun back there. My brothers and I would sit on either side of that screen. We, we didn't understand it, but it was kind of fun. <laughs> it's torn down now. But we had a confessional. And that confessional, of course, as you know, in the Catholic Catholic Church is where you go and you sit on one side of the screen and the priest sits on the other. And what are the words you say? Father, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And then you confess your sins. And, the and then the priest, what? Tells you to go pray so many Mary, five Hail Marys or whatever. Well, let me, let me say to you. Now, let me tell you this. We're going to be surprised about who's in heaven. Look around. There may be somebody in this room doesn't make it. I mean, I don't know your hearts, but there's going to be some Catholics there. One of my favorite Catholics of all time, that good Baptist, Mother Teresa. I love that lady. I mean, her life is an amazing, amazing, it's an amazing life. Now, I don't know her heart. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised from the dead, we're going to be saved. Now, that's the essence of the gospel. 
There's a lot of other peripheral stuff that we make a whole lot very important. But the essence of the gospel is who is Jesus to you? It is. You know, Muslims believe in Jesus, but they don't believe he's the only begotten son of God. They believe he's a prophet. Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, believe in Jesus. He's not the only begotten Son of God. He's a Son of God, and so can we be. The essence of the gospel is who is Jesus. And you can focus on that as you look at other faiths. Just ask the question, well, what do you believe about Jesus? Well, he was a good man. He was a prophet. Whatever. If they don't say he's the only begotten Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, and the only way to heaven, then they're off track. Jesus came, I believe, to change things. And I want to focus on one thing he came to do. The Bible teaches us that he came to become our high priest. Say that, our high priest. The only one we need. Amen? Now, as I begin to look at this topic, there's one book of the Bible. If you talk about Jesus as the high priest, Manny knows what it is because he and I had this conversation. If you talk about Jesus as our high priest, there's one book of the Bible that ought to come to mind, and I don't want you to say it. Just lift a hand if you think you know it. I'm not going to call on you if you think you know what it is. There's a few of you. I want to teach you this today. If you want the book of the Bible that talks about Jesus as our high priest, you go to the book of, Manny, Hebrews. So open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Now, folks, this concept, I think, is so important and so liberating if you understand it. If you understand it. We, though, let me tell you, Satan wants you to think you're unimportant. He wants you to think you're imperfect. He wants you to think you can't accept this as true. He wants you to think little of yourself. He wants you to think little of Jesus. And Jesus came to change things. He came to do away with the old way of doing things. In fact, if you look at the at the Bible, if you... And, there's reasons for every book. Now, the book of Hebrews, many authorities attribute the writing of the book of Hebrews to Paul. The interesting thing about the book of Hebrews is does Paul's name appear in the book of Hebrews? No. Does anyone's name appear as the author of Hebrews? No. But they say, well, we think it's probably Paul, but they don't know. Paul's letters, he started out by saying, I'm Paul, I'm writing to you, and he ended it by saying, and here's my signature usually. So there's a big debate about who wrote Hebrews. But there's no debate about why it was written or who it was written to. The title tells you who it was written to. Who was it written to? The Hebrews, the Jews, the Jewish people. And it was written because back in Jesus' day, after he died and was going back to heaven, the Jews were confused. They had spent centuries, thousands of years, worshiping God and following the law of Moses. I mean, their entire life was built around the law of Moses. It was built around the Old Testament. It was built around the sacrificial system. And Jesus came and changed it all. Now, the theme of Hebrews is simple. It's better. Better. Superior. Those are the key words. And the writer of Hebrews, whoever it is, we're going to find out for sure when we get to heaven, 
There's even some who believe it was a woman. Can that be? Yes, it could be, but we don't know. But the, the theme of the book is when you look at the old way of Hebrews, Jews, when you look at your old way of doing things, the law, the prophets, the priests, the sacrifices, and you compare it to the new way of doing things, the Son of God, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, he lived a perfect life, who was resurrected from the dead to conquer evil and death. When you compare the two, which is better? Jesus, right? And this whole book is about that. Now, I said to Dr. Orge, by the way, Dr. Orge is the president of the seminary. He asked me what I was preaching on, and I said, I'm preaching for Hebrews. He went, ooh. Why? Because the book of Hebrews can be has some difficult concepts in it, and the language is sometimes difficult to follow. But I want you to know the concepts are not. I can't deal with the whole book today, but I want to deal with this concept of our high priest, Jesus, our high priest. He's superior to the law, to the prophets, to the priests, to the sacrifices. He's superior to it all. So let me read, starting in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1 from Hebrews. And with that context, see if you can understand how this is being written to the Jewish people. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Pray with me. Father, this is your word. These are your people. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, today open the truths of Hebrews to us, this, this concept of the high priest, of your son. Lord, I would ask that your Holy Spirit would work in this place. Your son said if an earthly father knows how to give good gifts to his children, won't the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So today, Father, we humbly ask that you'd send your Holy Spirit here. We've already sensed his spirit in the music, Father. We've sensed his spirit in the fellowship and the family, the spiritual family that's gathered here. And now we pray that your word would be powerful through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So did you see that in the verses? He's writing to the Hebrews, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many, very, in many various ways. Well, the Old Testament... That's God speaking through the prophets. Moses was a prophet. Even, uh, even David was a prophet. Here's the Old Testament. I, I tell people the Bible's not a book. It's a library. How many books? 66 books. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And it's a library. It's a library. And the Old Testament is about the Old Covenant. It's the old way that God dealt with people. It starts with 
Genesis, and then it talks about Noah and the flood, and it talks about Abraham, it talks about how Moses came and brought the law, it talks about the sacrificial system, it talks about the Jewish people, it talks about a lot of things like that, and how God came to demonstrate. Now, the law that God gave in the Old Testament, could it save anybody? No. The law simply showed you how evil you really are. It showed you, here's God's standard. You know, I heard a preacher say one time, it was on the front, I think it was a joke, uh, special this week at church, nine commandments, you choose. Are there nine commandments? No, there's ten. And I want you to know all of us look at those ten commandments, loving God with all our heart, honoring your parents, not lying, not cheating, not stealing, not doing all those things. And all of us can look at that and say we fail. All it does is show us where we fail. It doesn't save us. Jesus came, the Bible in the Old Testament says, someday I will write that law on your hearts. When Jesus came, things changed. He broke, there was a veil in the temple. There was a holy of holies that only the priest could enter once a year. The day Jesus died, the curtain in the holy of holies was split. And now there was access for all of us into the very presence of God. The New Testament is all about how we don't need a priest. We don't need a temple. The Holy Spirit, when you receive Christ, your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, that was unheard of. Only certain people got the, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. But now Jesus came to tear down the wall of separation, to restore the one-to-one -one relationship with the Father. And Hebrews tells us a lot about how that happened. Now, I have an outline, and some people like outlines and some don't. If you don't, don't even worry about it. If you like an outline, you can fill it out. We read those verses. So number one, blank number one, Jesus is superior to angels. Now, this is what we just read. In fact, in, in Hebrews, that last verse, chapter 1, verse 4, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. You could add, he's superior to the law, he's superior to the prophets, he's superior to the kings, he's superior, period. But the verse said he's superior to angels. And then for several verses, he talks about angels. I'm not going to read all those verses, you can. He talks about verses from the Old Testament because he's writing to the Hebrews. He wants them to understand this is not a new concept. Look at these verses in the Old Testament that confirm the Messiah was going to be superior to angels. And then the last verse of chapter 1, you're going to see it on your outline. It says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? I love that verse, folks. You know, Baptists don't like to talk about this stuff. We're kind of afraid of the Holy Spirit and angels and all that kind of stuff. So um, let me just tell you, I believe in angels. Who believes in angels? Amen. I believe in good angels and, and bad spirits and demons and things. But the Bible says, he says right here, what, what's the purpose of these angels? They're ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Who in here is going to has inherited salvation. You've accepted Christ. It says angels are, are sent to help serve you. Let me tell you a quick story. When Debbie and I were much younger, and our daughters were much younger, in fact, 
our oldest, Melissa, was maybe four. I don't know, four or five. What do you think, Jeb? Do you think she's seven? See, that shows you what I remember. And Ashley was a couple years younger, three or four years younger. And Amanda, the third one, was in Debbie's arms. I said, Debbie, let's go take a ride on the new light rail train in Sacramento. It was a brand new train. They just opened it that week. And all week long, you could ride on the light rail from the suburbs into town and back for free. That's going to be fun. Well, the day we decided to do it was rainy. And we got there and parked our car at Watt Avenue and got in the train and rode downtown and uh, got out, walked around, got back in the train. We were riding back. Well, we got back and it was about dark and it was raining a little. And we got to our stop. Debbie stood up with the baby. I stood up holding Ashley's hand. And Melissa, our oldest daughter, just stepped outside and stood there on the platform. And before we could get to the door, it closed and the train took off. How would that make you feel? So it's dark and on a parking lot. And the good news was we were one, on one end of this parking lot, about a, less than a half a mile further at the other end of this huge parking lot, there was another stop. So I got out that stop and I said, you stay, get out and stay right here. I'll come and get you. And I started running through the rain to find Melissa. Well, I got to the platform where she was standing. She was just standing there. She wasn't upset at all. And I said, Melissa, I'm so sorry. And she, I said, I hope you weren't afraid. And I saw her said, were you afraid? And she said, no. I said, why not? And she said, well, the nice man told me not to be afraid, that you'd be right back. Well, I looked around, and there was no nice man anywhere to be seen. And if a man had been there, he, he would have stayed with her. So we believe to this day there was some, an, the Lord sent an angel to look out after our little girl. Jesus said, if you read in the New Testament, that the children's angels have access to the Father. That's where the idea of a guardian angel comes from, okay? So there is scriptural basis for ministering angels in our lives. Um, and so I would invite you to look for them. I really would. I'd invite you to look for them. Back to your outline. Jesus is superior to angels. The writer reminds the Jews of things that he already know. He, he talks about their forefathers, the prophets, the Son, Jesus Christ. He is worshipped by angels. Next blank, he's eternal. Do you believe that Jesus is from eternity? I love the first line of the Bible. In fact, it's one of the most important of all. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But I love John chapter 1, verse 1 as well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was the creator. Again, I don't understand it, exactly how it worked. I will when I get to heaven, maybe. But I know Jesus was there. He was eternal. He is the, he is the creator. That's the third blank there. And he sits at God's, you know the answer. Where is, God, where is Jesus sitting right now? It said in this verse, God's right hand. When You know, it's wonderful to remember Jesus as a baby. I like to remember Ashley as a baby. She... Big smile, beautiful blonde, curly hair, just lights you up. But we don't stay babies forever. And Jesus is not a baby in a manger. He's in charge of the universe at God's right hand. Amen? That's where he is today. And that's what he's reminding them of in these verses. He sends angels as ministering spirits 
to those who believe in him. Now, we haven't talked about high priesthood yet, so let's go to that. But the next verse, chapter 2, verse 1, says this. It's what I call a so what verse. Well, so what? Say that. So what? A so what verse is, well, if we know this is true, so what? It's a therefore verse, okay? Because all this is true, watch for the therefore in verse 1 of chapter 2. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. I want to read it again. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, what we talked about, so that we do not drift away. When I was studying this passage, now remember, I'm a child of the 50s, grew up in the 60s, and when I hear that phrase, drift away, what do you think of? Anybody? Dobie Gray, drift away. Anybody know the song, Drift Away? By Dobie Gray. So I looked it up. Now I want you to listen to these words. This is a song. I like this song, by the way. But not as much after I heard I, I, I read the words. Listen to this. Day after day I'm more confused. Yet I look for the light through the pouring rain. You know, that's a game that I hate to lose. And I'm feeling the strain. Ain't it a shame? So what's the mood there? He's sitting, he's looking for the light in the pouring rain of life. Life is tough. There's difficulties. There's tough things going on in life, life, but he's looking for the light. Who's the light? Jesus is the light. But listen to what he says. He says, I'm feeling the strain. It's a game I hate to lose, the game of life. And I'm feeling the strain, and ain't it a shame? And then the chorus. Oh, give me the beat, boys, and free my soul. I want to get lost in the rock and roll and drift away. Who knows that song? Come on, be honest. But listen to me. He's talking about life and how confusing it is, and he can't find the light. So what does he do? He turns to rock and roll and drifts away. This verse says, be careful that you don't drift away. When you're looking for the light that's Jesus and you can't find him, it's easy to drift away. It's easy for things in this world to take the place of Jesus. This song is about something taking the place of Jesus. In my book, he says, Oh, give me the beat, boys, and free my soul. I want to get lost in your rock and roll and drift away. Listen to the second verse. Beginning to think that I'm wasting time. I don't understand the things I do. The world outside looks so unkind. And I'm counting on you to carry me through. Oh, give me the beat, boys, and free my soul. I want to get lost in your rock and roll and drift away. Now, folks, let me tell you something. The world's got the best songs sometimes. I, I love a lot of that music. But do you hear the message of that song? What's that song say? That you look for the light and you look, you, you drift away in rock and roll when the world gets tough. It's telling us to look to the world for the, to, fill, to, to fill our souls. And are you going to fill your soul with the world? No. You know, we need to learn as we listen to songs to understand the truth or not of the message and talk to our kids about it because in the world today, believe it or not, it's the music, it's the entertainment that does more of the educating than anything else. Than anything else. 
I'll never listen to this song the same again. Then he says, thanks for the joy that you've given me. Now, does rock and roll give your soul joy? No, it it makes you feel good for a time. I, I agree with that. I want you to know I believe in your song and and rhythm and rhyme and harmony. You've helped me along, making me strong. Oh, give me the beat, boys, and free my soul. I want to get lost in your rock and roll and drift away. Are you drifting away? When things get tough in life, what do you turn to? Do you turn to the TV or do you turn to the telephone, you know, the the telephone now, or what do you turn to? The writer of Hebrews said, we must pay more careful attention to these truths about Jesus, therefore, so that we do not drift away. We do not drift away in the world. The answer is found not in rock and roll, but in Jesus. In fact, let me end with this. We all know rock and roll people that we've watched during our lives. I'm going to going to take a minute, but I'm going to tell you a story. Take you back even further. I may have told you this, so if I have, forgive me. I've got an old mind. But I loved the rock and roll era. I was in junior high school when the Beatles came along, but even before then, Elvis. So I was trying to impress a 17-year-old girl that I was dating long hair down to here, and beautiful young thing, and I asked her if she wanted to go see Elvis. Well, what did you say, Debbie? (laughs) She said, of course. So I took her up to Lake Tahoe. We lived in Sacramento and uh, paid the maitre d' 20 bucks. This is in the early 70s. That was a lot of money for me. They get a good table up front. And there was an opening act, and then out came Elvis. And Elvis, as he does began to sing his old hits, a medley of his old hits, you know, Blue Suede Shoes, Jailhouse Rock. And this young lady that was sitting by me at the booth I'd paid 20 bucks for stood up and squeezed her way up to the stage. And I'm sitting there, what's going on? And she's standing there, the stage about here, watching Elvis. And every time he would go by her, he'd look at her. Now, here's where the, the story differs. I remember her when he looked at her going like this. She doesn't remember that. Anyway, she was standing there. At the end of that medley, he came up to the front of the stage, and he knelt down just like this to Debbie, and this far from her face saying, Love me tender to my, to my girlfriend at the time. And when he was done, he leaned over and gave her a long, lingering kiss. My wife has kissed Elvis. Yes, that's true. <laughs> then as soon as she got her kiss, she just turned around, came back to the table and sat down. And women from everywhere headed for the stage. <laughs> now let me ask you a question. I want you to know, I think Elvis was a believer growing up. He loved gospel music. I don't know about, was he saved? I can't answer that question. He believed in God. He believed in Jesus. But let me, did rock and roll save Elvis? No, no. The world has a lot of things that bring us fun, that make us feel good, but only Jesus gives us meaning in life. It's, it, folks, that's the truth. The older I get, the more that's true. The more that's true. And the writer of Hebrews say, okay, 
since you, since you know these things, that there's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament, there's the old way, the new way, that Jesus came to be our Savior, that he came and is better than angels, that he sends angels to minister to us, since you know these things, be careful that you don't drift away. Because the pull of the earth is so strong on us, the physical. We all have to be careful not to drift away. Now I want to skip over to verse 17 of chapter 2. Here's another so what verse. Chapter 17, verse 17 of chapter 2. For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The writer of Hebrews says, and, and I didn't read all the verses, we don't have time, that we were people that were lost in our sins. We were people that had been separated from God. And for this reason, God had to send his son as a man, born as a baby in a barn, grew up in a very poor family probably, obscure family, but lived a perfect life. He sent his son. So his son would understand our temptations, would understand what it's like to be human. And by living a perfect life through the power of the Holy Spirit, he could become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He might make atonement for the sins of the people. How did the priests in the Old Testament make atonement for sins? They sacrificed an animal. Okay? That's what the Bible says, a lamb or a goat or something else. But Jesus became the final and perfect sacrifice for our sins. Verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Next blank on the bottom of your page. Jesus is, in fact, our great high priest. He's our high priest. Why is that important? Where is he sitting? At the right hand of God. And he's there to make intercession for us. Folks, listen. We don't really believe that. I'm telling you, you don't believe that. You, you say you believe, but you don't. If you really believe that your Savior, your friend, your brother, Jesus Christ, was sitting at the right hand of God, and he's there to send angels to minister in your life, he's there to make intercession for you, how should you be living differently? You should be crying out, Jesus, I need your help today. Would you send your, the force? I, I pray this now. Send the forces of light to do battle with the forces of darkness. In the Lord's Prayer, it's, it says to lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. That's another way of saying it. If you really believe that, you would cry out to God for your children, for your grandchildren, for our country. But I want you to know, Satan wants us to think, well, you're insignificant. You're weak. You're, you fail all the time. You're not worthy to cry out to God and Jesus and ask him to intercede. Folks, listen. That's why he came. You, we're going to meet someday Peter and Paul, and we're going to meet Philip, and we're going to meet all these other guys from the Bible. You know what we're going to say at the time we meet them? Well, they're not so much. I think you would say that. They're just, they were just people. You know the difference? They really believed, and it changed how they lived. It changed how they lived. It changed what they risked. 
It changed what they did. They weren't any different than us. So what? Now, I could go on all day, and I can't. But I want to read some verses just to give you an idea. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. There's another, so what? How does, it, how, does the, how does it start? Therefore. Therefore, holy brothers. And when he uses the term brothers, it's a generic. It means men and women. It, brethren. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus the apostle and high priest whom we confess. What does he tell us to do? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Say that with me. Fix your eyes on Jesus. How do you do that? Well, we're talking about the spiritual eyes. Every day, every moment of every day, you've got to say, Lord, I can't see you, but I know you're real. Enable me to focus on Jesus today, my high priest who sits at the right hand of God, who sends ministering angels to empower, to protect. I pray now, Lord, I pray for my grandkids, and you ought to pray for your grandkids. Lord, lead them not into temptation. Deliver them from evil. Send the forces of light to do battle with the forces of darkness in their life. You know what? We're very quickly now going to look at the rest of this outline. Jesus became to be our great, capital H, high, capital P, priest. But he came to do something else. He came to make us a holy and royal priesthood. Now listen to me. He came down lived, died, was resurrected, so that not only would he be our only, a holy high priest we need, but every one of us who believe in him and have been born again are his priests and priestesses. I want you to say something. If you're a male, say, I'm a priest. If you're a female, say, I'm a priestess. Say that. I'm a priest. You ever thought of that? What does that mean? Well, we're going to look at what that means. We're going to look at some more therefore verses. So, Turn if you would. It says in chapter 3, fix your thoughts. So number 3 on your outline is we should fix our thoughts on Jesus. And then he, he continues this thought in chapter 4, in verse 14. He talks about the Word of God being living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And in verse 14 of chapter 4, he says, therefore. What's the therefore? Here's the so what again. Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. That's the next blank. We should hold firmly to the faith. What does that mean? It means we should be relentless. We should hang on to it no matter what. When you think of a priest, think of a Catholic priest. How many of them have suffered and died? Now, in, in today, there's been a terrible tragedy in, in the Catholic Church with all the molestations. I don't want to think there. There's been thousands of priests who weren't involved in that. So let's not focus on those that have messed up. I want, I want you to focus on Catholic priests that have died for their faith, that are holding on to their faith. Well, you should be that way. How many Christians have died for their faith, holding on to it firmly, no matter what? Look what it says next in, in, in verses 15 to 16. I'm still in chapter uh, 14. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Now listen, 
He ties to holding on to your faith temptation. What quenches your faith in God more than anything else? I'll tell you what it is. It's your failures. I know it is with me. Lord, I'm inadequate. I, 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 could, I, 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 just, I, I can't even talk to you right now. I feel so inadequate. I, I'm drifting away. No, you hold on firmly. Every time you say, God, forgive me, I did it again. Lord, forgive me, I failed you again. Lord, forgive me, I'm so weak. You hold on to your faith. And then in verse 16, look what it says when you're tempted. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. What is approaching the throne of grace? The throne of grace is Jesus seated at the right hand of his Father. We're to approach the throne of grace with confidence. What's he talking about? Prayer. That's exactly right, prayer. We should pray boldly. Even when you fail is when you turn to God the Father through Jesus Christ and you pray boldly, Lord, forgive me. Jesus died for my sins. Forgive me. And then look, I'm going to skip to chapter 6. There's so much here I can't cover it all. Chapter 6 starts with, what, what's the word it starts with? Therefore, another so what? Let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. We should grow in spiritual maturity. Now, you don't grow in spiritual maturity just because you fill your head with a lot of knowledge. Some of you may know a lot about the Bible. You know how you grow in spiritual maturity? You experience it, and you keep doing what this is talking about. You keep holding on to your faith. You keep approaching the throne of God boldly. You keep experiencing the truth of the gospel in your life. When you're knocked down, you get back up. You've all helped raise kids. What child do you know that falls down three or four times and says, man, I'm giving up. I, 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 I'll never learn to walk. I'm just going to sit here all the time. Is that what they do? And that's what he's talking about. It's a never give up attitude. It's a, I'm weak. I'm not worth much, but God, you sent your son to die for me. He's my high priest. And I'm a priest or I'm a priestess, which means I've got to continually strive to hold my faith, to pray boldly and to grow. And then finally, chapter 10. I want to end with this. Chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 19, 10, 19. What's it start with? Therefore, therefore, brethren, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. So I'm, now he's talking about how the holy place in the temple, the veil was torn down, and now the holy place is in Jesus' presence. And he's seated at the right hand of God, and we're to approach that throne boldly, the holy place boldly. He says, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain. He's talking about that veil. That is the body. Jesus' body was the veil that was broken. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, now watch. I call this the salad passage. Why? What's the next two words? Lettuce. Okay? This is lettuce. Okay, here's some lettuces. Look, look what he says. He says right here. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of our faith. Draw near to God. How do you draw near to God? I'm telling you, there's only one way you talk to Him. You talk to Him when you're walking, when you're driving, when, when you're in trouble. You just say, God, I don't understand. Lord, you just draw near to God. It's prayer. You do it in Scripture reading. I love Psalm 19. is one of my favorite psalms. What a beautiful psalm to start the service with today. And it talks about... The heavens declare the glory of God. But then it talks about his word, his precepts. You see what I'm saying? Yes, we see God in nature, and we should spend time, by the way, instead of just fixated on the tube, experiencing nature and seeing God and in his word. 
So we draw near to God. Number five, look at what it says in verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he is he who promises faithful. What's this profess? We we got to hold strongly to the hope we profess. What's that word profess mean? We talk about it. It's coming out of our mouth. We confess Jesus. We profess Jesus. We call others to Jesus. We should be talking about Jesus. Look at the next one. This one's in verse 24. And let us consider how to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Spur. I love the King James. You know what it says in the King James? Provoke one another to good deeds. Now, isn't that a strange way of saying it? What does it mean, provoke one another, spur one another? You know, we're not supposed to be just interested in ourselves. If we're a priest or priestess, our job is to help others in their spiritual relationship, and every one of us is given that task. So spur one another on to good works. It's discipleship. Okay, now look at the next one. Verse 25, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. I put it this way, continue meeting together. It says, don't give up meeting together. We should meet with each other in church, in our homes, in our communities, because the Christian life is not a solo sport. It's all about community. Show me somebody that says, I don't need the church, and I, I love God, and I'm going to do my own thing. I'm telling you, they're drifting away, because the Scripture's clear. And then the last one, it says, let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Encourage one another. That's relationship and friendship. Okay, as I close, let me ask you a question. When you look down that list, look at the top. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Hold firmly to your faith. Pray boldly. Grow in spiritual maturity. Draw near to God. Hold strongly to the hope. Spur one another to good works. Continue meeting together. Encourage one another. I'm telling you, if you look in those verbs, you're going to see the duties of a priest or a priestess. I just wish I could bonk you on the head. You know, I wish I had a wand. And you would feel the sensation go through you to realize, I'm a priest. I'm a priestess. I want you to know also, I got another sermon. You're a prophet and a prophetess, or you should be. You're a member of the royal family. We don't live like it. Too often we don't live like it. At Christmas time, God's greatest gift to you is Jesus. We know all about him and why he came, but the so what, the therefores of him being a high priest and our Savior, is he came so we, yes, so we could be saved, saved from hell and all that. And that's wonderful. That's the first part. But we're saved not just from, we're saved to to make a difference in this world that he created that was good, that evil has come in. We're his answer to evil in this world. And if we're silent, if we just go along, if we just drift away, the world wins. So my challenge for you this Christmas season is act like a priest. Act like a priestess. Pray for other people. I'll do it in random ways. I was in church last Sunday morning preaching. I shared this sermon. First time I'd ever shared it, shared it last Sunday. And a man came in. I don't know who this guy was, but he looked either be on drugs or mentally. And he was over here speaking out. 
and yes, and distrained, right? I mean, I, I never meet, been in the middle of my sermon. He got up to walk out and said something. And as he went out the back door, I just said, Lord, send your Holy Spirit to work in his life. Do you realize you can do that? You're a priest. You're a priestess. God's Spirit is available to you, not just for your life, not just for your family, but so you can be a conduit. You can be a bridge for someone else to God. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. So I want to pray for you. If you don't know Jesus today, you can. It's fact, folks. I'm just telling you it's fact. The Christian uh, worldview is the only one that really gives answers to all of life's questions. I've, I'm studying them all now. It's the only one. You don't have to be ashamed of it. The facts support the Christian worldview. So I would challenge you. If God's Spirit, nobody can come to the Father unless the Father draws him the Spirit. God's Spirit may be working in your heart. Maybe you've been in church a long time, but you've never really been born again. What does that mean? You've asked God to forgive sins. That's the first step. The second step to being born again is his Holy Spirit coming into your life. I had a friend that prayed, Lord, forgive my sins. Lord, forgive my sins. He had seen his wife born again, and he wanted to be born again. He prayed that. He prayed that. And he then one day... It was weeks after his wife. He had been praying for weeks. He's, he finally understood. He was in a worship service, not our church, but another church. And he said, wow, Lord, forgive me. Send your Holy Spirit in my life. And he was changed. He was born again. Too often we think we're responsible for, for our salvation. We're not. All we can do is cry out to God and say, Lord, forgive me. Send your Spirit to fill me. Make me your child. I want to live for you. You can pray that prayer today. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long, long time, but you've never really experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's never been that real. Ask God to give you that. My favorite prayer these days is, if an earthly, Jesus said, if an earthly father wants, wants, gives, knows how to give good gifts to his children, I love to give good gifts to my children, won't the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Ask. Ask God to work in your life. Would you stand? We're going to pray, and then we're going to have a song. And I think we're done, Manny, aren't we today? So here, as we, as, as we just sing or have a song, this is a time of decision. In the old days, Billy Graham had people come. Did I ever go to a Billy Graham crusade? Wow. You know why Billy Graham was powerful? The Holy Spirit. He believed what I was telling you today. He lived every day as if it was real. It's hard to do, but you can do the same. And you, we're not going to be Billy Graham's. All of us can't be. But we can be his instrument in the world we're in. We can be his priest and his priestess in, our, in the world he's put us in. Father, I pray for this church. I thank you for Robert, their pastor. What a wonderful man he is. He loves you, Father, for Manny. Oh, Father, what a wonderful gift he is to this church. I just pray for them, the leaders of this church. They're not the priests, Father. They're pastors. They're shepherds. Every person who's a true believer here is a priest and priestess. So I pray you'd send your Holy Spirit and that every one of the people here would have a new, a new vision of what you could do through them as they live for you. May we never look at a day as an ordinary day, but may we look at every day as a day to serve you as a priest or priestess. Thank you for Jesus. And Father, if someone needs to invite Christ into their life today, you send your Holy Spirit to work in their heart. You accomplish your purposes now as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen.